0: Hello and welcome to Rise of RevOps. This episode features an interview with Daniel Bornstein, Vice President and Head of Growth Technology Vertical at Genpact. Genpact is a global professional services firm that makes business transformation real. Real. Daniel is a veteran of the consumer internet space and has a specialization in b 2 b to c At Genpact, he oversees growth for the technology verticals, Daniel managed the new business development team for Google in the UK and has also worked within the M&A landscape, playing a central role in a data marketplace IPL. On this episode, Daniel discusses the importance of fostering organic lead flow, the secret sauce of service lines, and why RevOps is an invention of the SaaS model. But first, a brief word from our sponsor.
1: Rise of RevOps is brought to you by Qualified. Qualified's Pipeline Cloud is the future of pipeline generation for revenue teams that use Salesforce. Learn more about the Pipeline Cloud on qualified.com.
0: And now, please enjoy this interview with Daniel Bornstein, Vice President and Head of Growth Technology Vertical at Genpact, and your host, Ian Faison.
1: Welcome to Rise of RevOps. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today I am joined by a special guest, Daniel. How are you?
2: Good. How are you, Ian? Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, excited to have you on the show, excited to chat about all things GenPacked and how you think about RevOps. And uh, and as a VP, it is it is top of mind. So uh, let's get into it. How did you get started in revenue operations?
2: Well, it's, it's interesting because um, I would argue that revenue operations is a fairly modern construct, which was really an invention of SaaS companies, which I think is, is kind of interesting as well. But um, for me, I was in graduate school in London and most of my classmates were going into consulting companies and investment banks. And I had I had started out working in web 1.0 startups. So following graduate school and in graduate school, I really wanted to work in tech. Uh, so I worked in Google for, for five years in the European office and then in New York and then back in Europe. And back then, I don't think revenue operations, I say back then about 15 years ago, was defined in the same way. So for me, I started out in sales uh, and very quickly um, I moved into management. So, you know, I've been in management in, in different facets my entire career. And management in sales constitutes strategy on some level. So to me, I think that's part of the revenue operations piece. And as the industry evolved, Um, That's kind of how I got into it from that side of it.
1: What's your definition
2: of revenue operations? My definition and the actual definition are probably not too far off. I would call it the revenue ops is the holy trinity of sales, marketing, and customer success. And I think that's right in the sense that common wisdom is those three departments of an organization working together in the most seamless Manner, all of them accountable to revenue. I think that's right. However, I do think that there's nuances, right? So I mentioned a few moments ago SaaS. So it's pretty interesting because my take, and other people may disagree, is that this construct of revenue operations and customer success and marketing and sales and go to market more generally has been an invention of SaaS companies. But what about other companies that are not SaaS that maybe are services companies that are B2B or companies that are B2B to C, like Google or Meta, right? Those companies also sell to to businesses, but their go-to-market motion may not be the same as SaaS. So what are those differences and how do those articulate themselves? And I remember about 10 years ago, I had a friend who's been in hardcore SaaS tech sales his whole career. And he said to me, you know, we would never hire somebody that comes from digital advertising because they don't know what they're doing. They wouldn't understand how to sell technology. It's too complicated for them. They're the wrong profile. And I actually think that's wrong. And I do think that there's there's some synergies, for example, between SaaS B2B and B2B digital advertising in the sense that they may both be focusing on small and medium-sized businesses, so what is the go-to-market there, and how does it parallel, right? Or how does it not parallel? Where does a, an SDR, BDR make sense, and where doesn't it make sense? So I, I think that's pretty interesting, and it's, it's kind of a long way of saying that the industry seems to be shaped by the point of view of SaaS, and I think it would be helpful to get other points of view when you think about revenue operations at, as a discipline.
1: And zooming out, what does GenPack do, and, and how have you organized your RevOps team?
2: Many people may not know jump back, so I'll give you sort of a, a brief one-on-one. Uh, we are defined as a multinational consulting and professional services firm, which is to say uh, part of our business is management consulting, and you may be familiar with some of the big names in that industry. In fact, we were recently named as uh, one of the top management consulting firms in the world. The second part of our business is professional services, which means we take areas where we have deep domain and we do work on behalf of of our clients to optimize their operations or to do digital transformation, moving them to the cloud or to create a target operating model for a financial transformation. So that's kind of what we do as a company. We were started in 1997. And in fact, we were part of General Electric, which is in uh, in a lot of ways, an iconic American company and a lot of the success of GE actually was a product of what's called Lean Six Sigma. So you've probably heard that term before, and I'm assuming some of your listeners know what it is, but maybe don't know it intimately. But to really kind of simplify it, it's a way of optimizing and improving process efficiency, which makes any company more efficient. And that's something that Genpak practiced on behalf of GE. Uh, and then in 1997, we were created in 2005, we spun out of G in 2007. We listed publicly on the New York Stock Exchange and we're a multi-billion dollar company with over 100,000 employees all over the world. And we do this work now for approximately 800 companies and a very large percentage of the Fortune 500. So it could be a lot of things. It could be helping them create a target operating model to create cost efficiency. It could be helping a large social media platform Moderate content. It could be helping a manufacturing company with their supply chain. And the list goes on and on. And in fact, in the SaaS space, we actually help companies become more efficient when it comes to sales, generating leads end to end, inside sales, SDR work, that sort of thing. And then for us, I think the second part of your question is how do we think about revenue operations? Well, we're a large company, right? When I say large company, I mean companies that have our size of employee base, 100,000 plus. And so we we do have customer success, right? We certainly have sales and we certainly have marketing and those those uh, three divisions 100% work together. I think what's interesting, and I'll just give you one data point that I find fascinating about GenPack specifically, is that for us, the definition of customer success is everything, right? And what I mean by that is that We have a set amount of accounts that are very strategic to us. And for those accounts, we put very, very senior people on them, right? So if you think about like a traditional SaaS company, they may have, let's say, I don't know, $100 million run rate SaaS company. Maybe they've got five SDRs, 12 AEs, two VPs, and five uh, customer success managers, right? I'm making this up, but let's just say it's correct directionally. Those customer success managers, they're probably going to be people between, you know, let's say from an experience perspective, four to 15 years experience, something like that, right? At the high end. What we actually do is we look at our strategic accounts and we put our most senior people on those accounts. So for example, somebody with 20, 25 years experience who has either been in consulting professional services or maybe client side, And we tend to deal with a lot of C-suite. So when we're dealing with a C-suite, we bring somebody with a pedigree and the acumen to match and we invest in those accounts to grow them and to be a trusted partner. So I think that's where we differentiate, I would argue, for the better is that investment in growing those accounts, but more so providing solutions to problem statements and helping companies grow more efficiently as time goes on.
1: Yeah, that's super fascinating and so cool to hear from a big company perspective and and all of that piece. Within RevOps, obviously, you know, customer success being such an important part of your RevOps motion here. How do y'all think about, you know, the customer success as it relates to RevOps?
2: Well, it's kind of, I think, as I described, which is just uh, an overinvestment into the account or to the partnership. I think what's really interesting about general and, and I'll give you kind of a, an anonymized, obfuscated example, right? As I said, our clients are Fortune 500. So it could be everything from one of the largest social media companies in the world to a large bank, to a large retail company. And we work obviously across industries. But we um, will answer RFPs in our industry. That's fairly commonplace. And we were uh, in the final throes of an RFP process and the prospective client asked us, well, can you please give us three examples of clients that churned, and what was the reason they churned? And we have a a channel that taps into kind of like a Slack-type, Microsoft Teams-type channel that taps into senior leadership across all of our accounts. And we posted on it, and we said, hey, we're looking for three examples, you know, where this was the case. And the response we got was, I don't know that we have three companies that we can highlight in this particular regard because our clients, our partners, tend to be multi-year contracts that we knew. Am I saying that we never lose a customer? No, absolutely not. Things change, the business world is dynamic, but that's our special sauce is that investment in that customer, because we have so many different, what we call service lines or areas of domain, like finance and accounting, where we're ranked one of the top in the world, or supply chain or sales and commercial, or enterprise risk and consulting or trust and safety. There's multiple different ways that we can help a business, right? So if we come in and we help a company with financial transformation, um, for example, say we help 500 to a billion dollar SaaS company they're maturing, they need more mature financial processes and target operating models and efficiency models. We can come in, we can create that strategy, do the work for them. Maybe a year down the road, they're looking at expanding their Salesforce internationally. And so when you expand a Salesforce internationally, I've been on this side of the table and you're in North America, easier said than done, right? GenPAC can come in in that particular example and say, well, we're in these. 12 countries that you want to get into. We've got our Lean Six Sigma lineage, heritage. We've got people on the ground. We've got the analytics. We've got our SMB uh, academy, and we can sort of create the go-to-market for you. So that would kind of be an example of we evolve with a client.
1: Any things, you know, obviously, emphasis on customer success being one of them, but any other things that you feel like are unique or different about your RevOps team or the way that you think about RevOps?
2: I think that's, I think that's probably the thing that in, in this particular question, that's what strikes me as being the most differentiated. This nexus between marketing, customer success, and sales, it's always an evolution, right? And over the last few months, I've seen that we've gotten even that much more tightly integrated, specifically in terms of sales and marketing, right? And in fact, I can tell you one other thing that's different from us is that we have, depending on how you define sales, right? We have a relatively small sales team and group for a company that has over 100,000 employees. One of the reasons I mentioned is because we work to help grow partnerships and accounts based on needs and, and as they evolve in multiple years. But the other reason is because a lot of our pipeline is actually referrals. Uh, so it doesn't require as much outbound sales. Obviously that's still very important to us and building an organic pipeline, which is something that I'm tasked with, is incredibly important. It's the lifeblood of the company. But traditionally the referrals have been a really good source for us and that has everything to do with satisfied customers.
1: Yeah, you're not gonna have that traditional, you know, gigantic funnel where you have all sorts of uh all sorts of leads, you know, left, right, and center. It's just not, you know, not a lot of people just sitting there cranking out a lead form trying to figure this stuff out, I'd imagine.
2: Well, so that's right. And I think the way that I would respond to that for us, it's all about quality versus quantity, right? It's not a commoditized, I don't mean commoditized in a negative connotation, but we're not a SaaS product that's commoditized in we have one, two, or three products and those one or two or three products have a rate card. A lot of what we do is very much bespoke. So when we think about how we go to market, let's say as a sales organization, it's more complicated. And in fact, we hire people typically with 20 years experience, VP level sales on an individual contributor level with advanced degrees in some cases, et cetera, because they need to understand a potential client's business. And through the help of their colleagues on what we call the service lines, the subject matter experts, understand, actually, can we help them? How can we help them? What are their problem statements? We're never going to, let's say, approach a new prospective client and say, please buy uh, option one, two, or three, or product A, B, and C, and we're never going to waste their time. We'll always do our research and we'll always understand to some extent that we can, based on publicly available information, what's going on in the company and have some sort of thesis on why it makes sense for them to have a conversation with us.
1: When things are so relationship driven and there's so much research and these, you know, huge deal sizes, sort of like land and expand type stuff, sometimes there's not as much data as, you know, you would get from a traditional, you know, SaaS product or a PLG, type product or something like that where you get tons and tons and tons of data. How do you think about data from a revenue ops perspective or just in general from a growth perspective?
2: So if I'm thinking about let's say an SMB advertising model where you have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of customers or even a SaaS product where your price point for a yearly license is 30 to 50,000 and you've got a large funnel, everything in that funnel is statistically significant because they're scale, whereas in a funnel like ours, we don't have that same statistical significance for pipeline efficiency. Is that kind of what you're suggesting?
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's like those RevOps folks that are normally sitting there, you know, looking for trends in the data and saying like, hey, this is something, this is an outlier, this is something, this is an opportunity. Is just, it's slightly different. You have to dig in probably a lot further.
2: Yeah, it it, it is different. That's that's a That's a great call out. And it's much more, let's call it manual. And I say manual with mixed emotions because we're a company that creates automation for our customers to improve their processes like robotic process automation and many other examples because we're a data and analytics company in so many ways. But when you think about ourselves as GenPact and how we go to market, it's a much more thoughtful approach and yes, we use data, but I'll give you a couple of examples of how we use data. So, first of all, the average VP of sales at our company—that's only exclusively trying to foster new partnerships with prospective customers, Fortune 1000, fast-growing tech companies, SaaS companies, whatever—they have they don't have a huge ICP, right? And when I say ICP, I mean like ICP as it cascades down to the individual level. So for the sake of conversation, they may have 15 or 20 accounts that they would like to partner with. So what does that actually mean in the go-to-market? It means that you become an expert on that particular prospective client's business. You're doing a lot of research. We actually have a growth operations team and they help us do Very, very, very deep level of research on the company, what's going on. Again, as I said earlier, we're never going to talk to a company unless we think that they have a problem statement that we can help them with, or they have, you know, a way that we can help them grow or a way that we can help them with efficiency. And we're going to have a point of view. We have to be careful, right? Because we don't want to be too assumptive and say, hey, we know what all your problems are. We can help you. We have to be a little bit more thoughtful about how we approach them how we have that discovery call how we learn so that's one thing that we do is we'll really do our research i love
1: it let's get to our next segment rev obstacles
0: obstacle obstacle an obstacle to one
1: there's your obstacle where we talk about the hard parts rev ops What's the hardest uh, RevOps problem that you faced in the last six months or or, a year?
2: Interestingly enough, now I'm 20 years into my career, roughly, and I have this experience from working what you call client side. And... I have a, a fairly good depth and breadth of knowledge in, in certain verticals in the sectors that I oversee from a growth perspective. So what I love about my job is working with companies where I know their business models very intimately, and I can kind of use my knowledge to help show them that I understand their problem statements. And in fact, sometimes even help with the solutioning. But to answer your question, I think qualification. So probably there was some potential pursuits that we shouldn't have qualified. And sometimes it's okay to say, for this particular project or for this particular multi-year initiative, we maybe don't think we're the right fit for you. And that's very that's very hard to do, right? If you think about it, let's say, let's again again use the SaaS example. If you have an ICP and you have a customer and they're willing to spend fifty dollars or $60,000 a year licensing your software, you're probably not too many instances where people are saying, you know what? I've got a quota. I've got a VP of sales. We have growth goals. Why don't you go ahead and not license this software because I don't think it's a good fit? So that to me is kind of interesting.
1: Any other like obstacles or things? I mean, I think qualification is so core to like, exactly what you said. The enterprise experience, right? It's just so tough, you know, from that space, especially when it's you know not not a super high volume thing. I mean, I guess. It's hard both ways, but any other uh, rev obstacles or maybe some rev oops moments, a mistake that you've made in the past year?
2: I think pricing is another thing because pricing is very dynamic in, in what we do and we need to strike the balance between giving the appropriate price where the potential customer sees value and not putting a price that's going to make it um, detrimental to GenPack. So because it's not, you know, every engagement is bespoke. I think there's some, some areas there potentially for improvement. But one thing that I would say isn't so much an obstacle necessarily, but it's kind of a unique differentiator to our business, is because, again, going back to this notion of, I have three products and three price points, right? And I know I'm oversimplifying it. Um, We have so many different service lines where we excel in. So one of the things that um, we've been, I wouldn't say challenged with, but it's anybody that's coming into GenPack, and I have a fairly newer team, is how can you be an expert in finance and accounting, supply chain, sales and commercial, trust and safety, enterprise risk and consulting, source to pay. I mean, the list goes on and on. You can see I'm struggling to even name all of our service lines. And so how do you, the challenge is, how do you look at a particular customer, right? And how do you say like an on-demand customer and say, what are the four areas where we think we can help them? Or what is the one area? So that part, again, that's that's a little bit of a challenge. And the way that we overcome that is we have a learning platform called Genome. And it's one of the largest learning platforms in the industry. It's got hundreds of thousands of hours of interactive content. It's got sessions where somebody like me, I'm a a guru for high-tech, so somebody's going through what we call their high-tech wave and they're going through all the areas to be proficient in it and the certifications. So we invest very heavily in that to help overcome those challenges of learning. And it's not just learning about us, it's also learning about the industry or learning about cloud or learning about how to be an effective public speaker. So that, that's quite a, a big differentiator with Genpact is that focus on learning at all levels of the company.
1: All right, let's get to our next segment, the tool shed.
2: Hey, hey Brandon, Michael, want to do me and mom
1: a favor get off that shed?
2: This is my favorite place, <laughs> the tool shed. Get off the shed! That's
1: so where we're talking tools, metrics, spreadsheets data and all that stuff. Just like everyone's favorite tool, qualified. No B2B tool shed is complete without qualified. Go to qualified.com right now and check them out. Daniel, what's in your tool shed?
2: So I won't bore you with everything that's in our tool shed. Instead I'll I'll answer the question a little bit differently in terms of how I think about what should be in a tool shed. So we we kind of use the again, I won't mention all the the tools that we use, but we use kind of the common tools that you would think a company like ours of our size, or even frankly, uh, a B2B SaaS company would use, for example, Salesforce or Marketo as part of Salesforce, right? Or, you know, tools like Qualified. Um, So I think we're very much trying to be on the cutting edge of what we need to license to make our business, you know, a modern sales organization and so on and so forth. But I will tell you two things. One is, my approach traditionally, because I built you know a number of tech stacks when I was more in startups, is I always look at anything licensable or any suite of tools within a must-have or a nice to have bucket. If you're nice to have, probably you're not gonna win a contract with us. If you're a must-have, you're must-have. And and I like Salesforce only, I know it's so obvious, but I'll give you like a very, very short anecdote. A year ago I was visiting my dad, and my dad is a retail investor, and he invests in numbers of you know a number of companies, like for example, in this particular day, he said, "What about Salesforce?" So he knows Salesforce. He knows the financial metrics, right He can see the growth of the stock, but he doesn't necessarily understand the business. He says, "Should I buy Salesforce?" Now I can give my dad any piece of advice I want on Salesforce because I'm not an employee of Salesforce. There's no moral hazard there. And I said, so I explained to him this paradigm of companies licensing software in nice to have versus must have. And then I explained to him that Salesforce has this thing called ARR, and this is what ARR is. And they're so sticky because you have to customize and you have to build your own instance of Salesforce. And they have all these other technologies, like Qualified, for example, that bolt onto Salesforce. So effectively their customer churn, has got to be one of the lowest in the industry. So like Yes, it's probably a pretty safe stock to buy. Right. So that's, that's kind of my view on, um, on licensing. And then one of the things that I think is interesting, and, and I don't mean to be controversial, but this is a podcast about revenue operations. Uh, there's been some debate over the last few years on personalization versus automation. Right. And what I mean by that is in your sales go to market. And there are, we all know people are listening to this podcast, know who the players are, but there is a, a set of companies that create what I call sales ESPs. They don't call themselves sales ESPs. I'm calling them sales ESPs because essentially what you're doing is you're, you're using a marketing approach to sales instead of doing one to one. You're doing one to many. Now, I'm not criticizing these companies because I think what these companies did is genius because they're doing well. They found product market fit and they found customers who are looking at the promise of how do I make my sales force more efficiently. But in the act of using automation, again, we're a company that embraces automation and we do it on behalf of our customers. But where does it make sense and where doesn't it make sense? So if you're treating your sales prospects, like you're treating your marketing prospects, I think it's a race to the bottom. I think people are trying to find what is that latest technology or what is that latest trick to get a higher conversion rate. And they're sending these cadences and they're semi-personalizing them. and, And guess what? People are smart, right? Decision makers at companies are smart. And when they're getting an email, which feels impersonal, where somebody didn't talk about their business their issues, something that feels authentic, they're not going to respond. So it's it's no wonder when people start talking about, I have a 3% conversion rate on sales emails, like, wow, that's amazing, right? Because it's a little bit, if everybody's doing it, if everybody's automating this, it's really no different. You might as well just send emails from Marketo. And those are going to have lower conversion rates as well, depending on what it is. And, you know, maybe it's promoting an event has higher conversion rates. So I think about this personalization versus automation as being somebody that's worked in tech companies that wants to license the best technology as a company where we use technology to help digitize our, our, our client's business to help them digitally transform. And where does it become too much? Right? So for us, again, and this is my own personal opinion, when we're reaching out to potential prospects, everything is hyper-personalized. Of course, easy for me to say, because as we discussed, we're not going after thousands of companies at scale, but if everybody's doing it, how effective is it gonna be? So I think I'm not trying to pick on these cohort of companies and I'm not trying to pick on SaaS companies that use this kind of sales automation. And I think by the way, it, it, it certainly works. Like if you're using it for inbound SMB advertising with tens of thousands of customers at scale, you need automation. But there there's a rate of diminishing returns there. And I don't I don't feel like that's debated enough in the industry.
1: I couldn't agree more. I think it's really tough to see some of those automations go out and you're like, yep, yeah, this is just an automation automation, you know. Like you said, it's different when it's coming from marketing, but when it's coming from sales, it's a little tough to be like, you know, email number four in the <laughs> in the automation. And it's like don't think I haven't forgot about you. You know, like, have you seen our latest like webinar or whatever? And you're like, no, I didn't. And no, I didn't want to see it. Um, uh, do you have uh, any examples of, of the personalization and stuff that you're doing that that has worked well?
2: It's a great question. And I can give you one example from the, the recent past. There's a company in our ICP, And my team had been reaching out to that company for some time without success. And we know for a fact that there's two particular things that we do where we're ranked number one or number two in the world. And and I'm not saying that they have to work with us. But what I am suggesting is that given that these are things that are important to them, given that they would work with either us or our competitors and given how highly we are ranked by third parties, it certainly makes sense for them to understand how we differentiate and to have a relationship with us, even if that's just to have a call to understand a little bit more. And for one reason or another, and this is a vertical where we have a lot of success and frankly, we have a lot of customers. And when I say we have a lot of customers, it's a finite grouping of companies and we have a high percentage of those companies as customers. So we felt very passionately that this is a a relationship we should have at least just to understand what they're up to and them to understand what we're able to to provide as a a partner. But they just weren't getting back in touch with us. So at a certain point, and frankly, I actually used sales automation because we do license a platform that where I was able to see a decision maker in that company, a C-suite decision maker, was opening certain emails and interacting with us. Uh, And so I emailed her, and this is me personally emailing her, and I said, essentially, we've been trying to reach out to you for some time. We haven't been able to connect. We're very well positioned in the industry. We really think it would make sense for you to talk to us, and so on and so forth. So it's just a very sincere email coming from Daniel, being very honest And she responded in 15 minutes and said, let's set up a conversation. So I think for me and for how we coach our teams that go out there and sell, is have that sincerity of voice. Uh, And I'll give you another um, example as well, which is a little bit past the the discovery phase, which I really loved. So there's a a gentleman on my team. He's the go-to-market lead for on-demand customers. So on-demand exactly as you're thinking of it, like the Ubers of the world, et cetera. So that's a vertical within one of the sectors. And we were invited to an RFP process. In the RFP process, we submitted the RFP, it was comprehensive, and we like to write welcome letters and, and show the personalization, right, and show that sincerity of intent. And the first two or three lines of the welcome letter, he wrote something very hokey and corny that had to do with being a customer of their business to being a consumer of their business because they're, they're essentially a consumer company, right? And so he asked me, do you think I should write this letter in this way? And I said, I wouldn't do it because it's not who I am, but I know you very well. I'm not saying he's hokey by any means, but it fit with his personality. So this is like sincerely who you are So go ahead and and write it. And funnily enough, we're on a call with the decision maker about three weeks after that. And she was asking about sort of dry things, pricing or solution or what are you offering here? Then at the end of the call, her tone changes. And she says, by the way, I just wanted you to know that when I read your RFP and I saw that you wrote this little blurb. I thought it was so witty, so funny, it entertained me, it made me laugh. And by the way, when you're reading RFPs, B2B, it's very dry stuff, and it's not super interesting all of the time. And this actually made me chuckle and made me happy. And we thought, and you don't usually get that kind of feedback from customers, especially in formalized RFP process processes, but we thought that was great. Right. And so, again, you know, not to belabor the point, but having these sincere, genuine moments with clients, whether it be a cold email to try and generate a discovery call or when you're in the sales cycle, it's important. Even if you're a large B2B company like us, we're all people. People buy from people. You want to show who you are. You want to build that connection. That's super important to me.
1: Any other uh, final thoughts on on, uh, on tool shed, tools, uh, metrics, a metric that, that you particularly care about or, or any blind spots that you're trying to measure uh, in a different or, or better or unique way?
2: Yeah, so from a metric perspective, if I look at a funnel, for me personally, the number one thing that I care about for my teams is uh, discovery calls. Because as I mentioned to you ear- earlier, We're not beneficiaries of being in the industry for a while and having a really good reputation for being a partner that exceeds expectations. So we do have a very healthy uh, inbound organic lead flow, but of course, every company wants to grow. So for me, what keeps me up at night is how do I build that inorganic pipeline? And I very much gauge my success and I gauge very much my team's success based on how good are you at building inorganic pipeline because we're a company that's filled with very smart intellectual people. And when we have an opportunity to bid for some work, we're pretty good at converting. And I'm not saying that's an easy skill, but I'm saying that's something that as a company, we're very, very good at. We're a very intellectual company on the employee level. However, building inorganic pipeline, it's an an intellectual exercise. Uh, It's also a soft skill exercise. There's a lot of things that play into that. So every th- it, for me, it's all about bin- building inorganic pipeline and it's all about generating discovery calls. So again, going, going into this topic of quality versus quantity, we don't need to have 20, 10 discovery calls a week necessarily, but what we need to have are discovery calls where there's sincere interest in having a thoughtful conversation. So that's it. So that's, that's what I would say to that is, is pretty simply um, discovery calls. And then in terms of what would I like more visibility into, it would be the dark funnel. I think the dark funnel is, is very important. And I know that that, that speaks to what Qualify does, what, what other companies do as well. But how can you engage with people before they fill out a lead form on your site? Once they fill out a lead form on your site, it's depending on the business you're in, it might be too late. That just means you're going to be in a competitive RFP process you have no advantage. And that's probably fine for the company if they're reading Gartner or they're reading some other third party in terms of who are the highest ranked companies in the industry. And that happens in B2B SaaS and other industries as well. But for me, how can we have those conversations? How can we illuminate that dark funnel before you get to that point? I know that's very important to our marketing group. It's very important to me.
1: Yeah, it it is. I mean, it it is, it's arguably one of the most important things that kind of we're all dealing with right now is just like the change in buyer behavior and dark funnel being sort of this you can just do so much research on your own now without talking to a salesperson all right and then you and then you get so many of the calls it's like yeah 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 just give me the price give me the price give me the price and they you know they want to get on there and then sales people are like frustrated by it
2: yeah 100% 100% all
1: right let's get to our final segment quick hits Quick questions, quick answers. Daniel, are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, if you could make any animal, any size, what animal would it be and what size?
2: An elephant the size of my dog. (laughs) My dog is 55 pounds. She's a Portuguese water dog.
1: All right, 55-pound elephant. What's the 55-pound elephant in the room? Um, Do you have a... (laughs) It's a good one. Do you have a, uh, a favorite podcasts or, or show or, uh, or book that you've been checking out recently?
2: Yes. Um, I'm reading this new, I, am sorry, I forget the author, uh, this new book on the metaverse. It's still in hardback. It doesn't have like a super large distribution, but I think Genpact and me personally, were very interested in how we can help customers in the metaverse. And, and we're actually starting to do that with a couple of um, select customers.
1: Any, uh, RevOps misconceptions or, or, uh, or predictions?
2: So misconception is, I think that a lot of people think that it's a technocratic exercise. And I think it's less technocratic than people think. Um, I think it's uh, a lot of it has to do with art and science. Predictions, we, we probably already touched on. I think that the pendulum is going to swing more to personalization versus automation. In fact, I think it should. And I've been pretty vocal about that.
1: What would be your best piece of advice for someone newly leading a, Red, a RevOps team?
2: That's a very good question. I know this is supposed to be short and punchy. I think it would be get into the weeds and don't just focus on the strategy in one sentence.
1: Daniel, that's it. That's all we got for today. Any uh, any final thoughts here for the show?
2: No, I, I don't have any final thoughts, but I very much appreciate the, the time and the opportunity to discuss revenue operations. I think it's a really interesting and evolving field.
1: Yeah, indeed. And for our listeners, you can go to genpact.com uh, to learn more about the company and, uh, and everything there. Thanks so much, uh, Daniel. and We'll talk soon.
2: Thank you for listening to Rise of RevOps. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you're listening. This podcast was created by the team at Qualified. The Pipeline Cloud is the modern way B2B revenue teams generate pipeline. Learn more at qualified.com.